This is Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfmanera. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Coming up this hour, breast cancer has touched many of our lives. One in eight women will be diagnosed with a disease which remains a leading cause of cancer-related death. But there's some new research that could lower our risks and lead to early detection. We're talking with the top breast surgeon at Penn Medicine, and one survivor shares her story of resilience. That's coming up later in the show, Cherry. We want your questions and comments. Maybe you're a survivor or the disease has impacted your life in some way. Give us a call, 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. Then later in the show, mm-hmm. we're traveling back through 50 years of rock and roll at the Electric Factory, the famed concert venue and concert promoter. Cherry, you ever uh, gotten down at the Electric Factory? I to the new one, yes. The new one, About yes. 10 years ago. About yes. 10 years ago. It was ago. cool for Good a party. Time? Yeah, great time. For a party, not for, for a, a concert. Con- for a party, yeah. Well, yeah, it was a concert party. Oh, concert party. Well, maybe we'll yeah, talk about that we'll more talk off about air. That. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, co-founder Larry Maggot stopped by the studio earlier to spin a few yarns, a few records. But before we get to that conversation, Cherry, we do have some breaking news. I'll toss it over to you. That is correct. WHYY News has learned that two suspects have been arrested in the shooting of Philadelphia police officer Richard Mendez. An official statement or announcement is expected this afternoon. Earlier this week, though, an 18-year-old from Cherry Hill was arrested in connection with the shooting that reward in that case has grown to more than a quarter million dollars. Yeah, reiterating, WHYY News has learned two suspects have been arrested in the shooting death of Philadelphia police officer Richard Mendez. More on this story come, as sure. the afternoon progresses. Also want to talk about some other things in the news here, Cherry, including a really fascinating deep dive the Inquirer did about a guy named Bill Bockenberg. You've probably never heard of Bill Bockenberg. I hadn't before this morning. But he has emerged as a key player in those 2020 election reversal efforts. He's a Pennsylvania businessman. Uh, He owns this target shooting business up in the Lehigh Valley. Before that, he had been in the cybersecurity realm. And there is a new lawsuit that claims he provided a $1 million line of credit Mm. to fund voting machine analyses in Pennsylvania and Michigan. And then, get this allegedly refused to pay the company that did the work after they found no evidence of fraud, not surprisingly. Um, and so that has what has metastasized into this lawsuit. But it's also, you know, focused some attention on this guy, Bockenberg, who really wasn't even that known in GOP political circles before 2016, but has become a huge MAGA Republican. Yeah, very interesting uh, article by the Inquirer. I mean, he hadn't been mentioned in any of the indictments against Trump and, um, you know, but his name came up as, you know, you start talking to folks uh, in the Lehigh Valley. I noted that he's a former board member for the National Rifle Association, former tech company CEO, and used to be considered a pretty traditional Republican. Um, He used to back um, folks who were moderate and independent minded, but got soured on him when they wouldn't do what he said. So mm-hmm. he's an interesting character, and I'm sure people will be watching him now. Like, that's what happens, right? Yeah, and he's elusive. He really doesn't talk. Yeah. Um, he's appeared at some rallies and stuff like that, but really beyond that, we don't know a ton about him. A Republican official told the Inquirer anonymously that he became, quote, unhinged after oh. the 2020 election. So perhaps his name will continue 
to surface. Uh, let's uh, go across over. the river yeah. now to Trenton, Sherry. Trenton, yeah. New Jersey. The police department there is now under federal investigation after complaints of excessive force and unlawful search. Now, the Justice Department Civil Rights Division in Washington caused the allegations, quote, serious and credible. Mm. Now, officials reviewed a range of information from media reports to court records to body-worn camera footage, as well as statistical data about police interactions. And what was very interesting to me is that this case was not open because of any particular incident, yeah. but it it opened, this case was open when the U.S. Um, attorney for New Jersey attended a town hall meeting in Trenton and community member after community member spoke out against unlawful practices of the police department there. So it was almost like the U.S. attorney sitting in the room couldn't ignore mm. the evidence of, you know, folks talking to him right there. So they opened this up. They had they found problematic examples and instances of minor traffic offenses onlookers who were recording or questioning police activity, as well as confrontations that were unnecessarily escalated, including when dealing with people in mental health crisis. So a lot is going to be looked at over yeah. in Trenton. You mentioned the thing that was most interesting to me, yeah. too, Cherry, the idea that it was not one incident. That's typically how these mm -hmm. investigations are opened at the federal level. One horrible thing happens, and then basically the federal government says, let us look at whether this is a pattern within the department. This is not what happened in Trenton. No. Like you said, there was this pivotal town hall. Never heard of anything like that, and we'll be very interested to see what comes of this. But you know what this says to me? When your officials come to town, show up. Speak out. Speak out. Say what you need to say because you never know. They, This person was listening. Absolutely. Let's uh, track back now to Pennsylvania. In fact, the middle of the state, mm. near State College. Really fascinating story <laughs> in the New York Times earlier this week about researchers in Pennsylvania who for the past decade have been studying the secret life of deer. Ooh. It's in Bald Eagle State Forest. That's where the study is taking place. They're tracking about 1,200 deer over the course of the decade and learning all sorts of interesting things about deer behavior. And you would think we knew a lot about deer, right? Because they're all over. They're in urban, suburban communities as well. But it turns out we really don't know that much about deer behavior, and they mm. are breaking new ground with what they call the Deer Forest Study. Penn State and some other entities are involved the whole article of the New York Times is really, really interesting, and I might, I might spin a quick yarn on it quickly. But do you have any reactions? Only that I thought about it, and I really don't know much about deer. I feel well, bad about it because I was like thinking, like, what deer facts do I have in the back of my mind? <laughs> Zero. And I'm looking in the file boxes. Empty. It's empty. Well, I don't think it's surprising that we don't know anything about deer, but I just was interested that even like the scientific community Did has know. a lot of unsolved questions about deer. Yeah, yeah. Quick yeah. story from the New York Times article. So they're following. So deer typically, apparently, they they stay in like a pretty tight area. They mm. sort of circle around like a one square mile area. Typically, that's their territory. They were tracking this deer. One day, the deer goes like one mile in a straight line outside of its typical territory to a ridge. Okay. The deer then just comes back to its normal territory, lives its life for a couple more years. Two years later, same thing, goes back to the ridge. What was it going for? And dies. Oh, God. And they don't know why. And that's one of these. And there's a million mysteries like that if you read the story. This is just a really like telling the example. They life. don't know like why the deer did that and whether there is something about sort of the deer mortality process 
that they sort of like test out two years before they they sort of end their For natural life. some period life. of time. Who knows? Yeah, it, it, so there's all sorts of fascinating stuff. Anyways, I'm nerding out on deer. I'll stop Clearly, now. Clearly, but it's all saying, right. Check all right. out we the story in the Times. It's, it's called the deer, the deer Forest Study, and there's a blog where you can follow all the developments. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool, and it's become pretty popular, too. Another thing, uh, oh, let me ask you this. Yes. Um, did you hear the Fresh Air interview yesterday? You know, I came home from mm-hmm. work. I was doing a pledge drive. And I walked in my house and my wife was listening to it. So I caught some of it then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was with Jada Pinkett Smith. Jada Pinkett Smith, co-host Tanya Mosley did a wide ranging interview with Jada Pinkett Smith. You know, the wife of actor Will Smith. If you didn't know, she has a new memoir out titled Worthy. It's And she's been making the press circuit. Tanya mm-hmm. did a great job. Talked about her relationship with Will, Tupac, growing up in Baltimore, all these things. Yeah, it was a great interview. The slap, all of that. Yeah. Okay. But what surprised me when I woke up in this morning? Yeah, what, what, Let me was, tell you, what surprised me? It was a good interview. The comments on the Facebook <laughs> page for Fresh Air, okay? Were? Yes, people do not like Jada. Yeah, yeah. I was shocked. There yeah. were like almost 200 comments, and people were going at each other, too. Yeah, and Fresh and Air. And Fresh Air, people. That's usually the friendliest corner shocked. of the internet. Yes. And so I put out a question on my Facebook page, and quickly, two dozen comments, all upset at Jada and I was like what is going on here were you surprised you read some of the comments and was like oh my god this did definitely catch me by surprise and uh, you know it was a level of reaction and vitriol that's usually reserved for people who are like outwardly controversial maybe politicians Jada Pinkett Smith is a public figure and a celebrity but I like didn't understand that she inspired such strong reactions for reasons I'm still not quite clear on. I, and that's why I was like, this is like the secret life of deer. I don't know. Jada Pinkett Smith. I don't know. Like, people, and there's memes. It's getting crazy. So anyway, definitely worth listening to the Fresh Air interview. It was great. It's a phenomenon we don't understand. And if you got some popcorn and a glass of wine, you might want to read the comments <laughs> oh, and, you know, stir up some stuff. So we there just, you go. But let's reiterate, it was a fantastic interview fantastic by Tanya Mosley. It's different than the typical Jada Pinkett Smith interview. And she has lived a fascinating life she in the did. public eye. She did. Um, and is very straightforward about it. Maybe that's why she's somewhat... Yeah, very you know, gets, open. She's very, very open. open. Um, so let's do a little newsmaker interviewing mm-hmm. right now, Sherry. Uh, you've been talking about this. I've been talking about this. Philadelphians will elect a new city government on November 7th. While the mayor's race has a heavy favorite, some city council seats are very much up in the air. There's already been a ton of turnover on council over the past two years, and more could be coming. To help us get a lay of the land, we've invited Lauren Vitas to join us. She writes the Broad and Market blog and follows council very closely. Few people know council like Lauren. Lauren, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks so much for having me. Lauren, exciting times in Philly politics right now. Big changes. New mayor, new city council president new faces and council as a political nerd here. What are you most excited about, but also most nervous about as things shift? I think the thing that's most exciting is the number of new people coming onto council uh, and some of the newly elected folks who've been on council for the last one or two years through special exec, uh, special elections. Yeah. Um, we had a whole host of resignations because of the mayor's race and resigned to run, which freed up a lot of spots. Um, so I'm excited because new faces typically mean new energy, new ideas. Uh, 
But the flip side of that coin is it's going to take them some time to get their sea legs mm. and, and really get a sense of how government works. Um, so again, I think it's a great opportunity. Um, and I think the mayor has a great opportunity to build new relationships and new coalitions and, and really get his or her agenda uh, through. Really interesting. Um, there are some races that could be competitive. I know one that you're watching closely is the 10th district, Northeast Philly. Mm. Um, what's interesting to you about that race? So the far northeast, uh, the 10th councilmatic district, and just to give listeners a, a bit of an overview, there are 17 total council seats. Ten of them are district-based, which means geographical representation, and the other seven are at large. Uh, the 10th district has been represented by Councilman Brian O'Neill, um, who is the sole Republican on city council right now, um, and he's being challenged by Gary Messino, uh, who is a labor leader in the city. Um, and what makes this interesting is uh, incumbents typically Typically, especially district incumbents, typically don't have viable challengers. Yeah. It's a very heavy, uh, very steep hill to climb. Mm -hmm. um, and Messino is well-funded and has a lot of labor support. So the question is whether Councilman O'Neill is going to be able to continue his 40-plus years of service on city council or whether the Republicans will lose their only representation amongst the districts. Fantastic. Interesting. Yeah, and, and expanding about Republicans possibly losing uh, representation, there's a major challenge in the at-large races as well that could oust another Republican. Right. There's there's a very real chance that there will be zero Republicans on city council come January 2024. And, and lay out the, the yeah. at-large situation. So there are seven, as I mentioned, there are seven at-large seats, which means the folks that they're, they're elected citywide, so everybody votes for the at-large. Um, and under the charter, five of those seats are reserved for the majority party for all intents and purposes as Democrats, Democrats in Philadelphia. Yeah. And the other two are reserved for the minority party. Um, and historically, that has been Republican. Republicans. Um, up until four years ago, where the Working Families Party made a major push as an independent third party to take those two seats. Um, they were somewhat successful in getting Councilwoman Kendra Brooks elected, mm -hmm. uh, but Councilman David O at the time, who is now the Republican candidate for mayor, uh, managed to get reelected. So it was a split of the two minority speeds be seats between Republicans and the Working Families Party. Um, the Working Families Party is going back and they're trying it again. Uh, so Councilwoman Brooks is running for reelection as an independent, uh, and Pastor Nicholas O'Rourke, who ran last time, is also running. Um, there are two Republican candidates running as well, uh, Drew Murray and Jim Masher. Um, mm -hmm. And so when voters step into the booth come November 7th, they will get to select five at-large candidates and they can choose all Democrats, they can split it, um, and there's a real push to get Democrats to vote for independence instead of voting for all five Democrats. A real push, but not everyone in the Democratic Party is so happy about that push, right, Lauren? Absolutely not. Uh, Chairman uh, Bob Brady, who's chair of Democratic City Committee, has made it very loud and clear that he expects the wards uh, and the committee people to support the five Democrats on the ballot and to not split their votes uh, with the, the independent parties. Which would, in, in essence, probably open up a path for both Republicans to potentially win if people follow the marching orders from Bob Brady and the like. Yeah. Whoever wins those two minority seats will, will likely do so because of Democrats, not necessarily because of the independent or Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Wow. Very fascinating. And there are other uh, new faces that are likely going to be on city council. Uh, could you talk about those folks as well? Because we're going to have uh, so many people who have had either 
one term or less <laughs> come the majority of council will be one term or less when it comes gen- when come time for January. Yeah, of the 17 members, 8 of them will have fewer than 2 years of service and wow. in some cases 0 years of service. Um so on the at large side, um the the two democratic uh nominees that are likely to win in g- the general are Rue Landau, who will be the city's first um openly LGBT city council member, um and as a member of the community myself, I'm very excited to have some representation on council in that regard. Uh, and Dr. Nina Ahmad will be the uh, other new at-large face. Um, and then on the district side, um, big shoes to fill. Jeffrey Young in the 5th Councilmanic District will be replacing, uh, he's running unopposed, and he'll be replacing retiring wow. council president Daryl Clark. Wow. Yeah. And, and so when we talk about how council functions, for a long time, we were often talking about how Daryl Clark functions mm-hmm. as council president. We don't know who council president is going to be rumors yet, swirling, but, but there are rumors swirling. Do you think you have a sense of where it's headed and how it might change how council operates? And we have about a minute left. Yeah. Um, so the Inquirer is reporting that uh, Councilman Kenyatta Johnson has the the support for council president. Um, and so folks, for folks to understand, the council president is an internally elected position. It's mm-hmm. the council members voting who they want to lead the body. Um, and I think, you know, the question will be, will, will if, if Councilman Johnson takes over, will he continue the path that Council President Clark set, where he kind of like ruled with an iron fist? Mm-hmm. Or will we go back to the, the sort of Anna Verna days where, you know, anybody who introduced a bill had a right to a hearing. She sort of treated people as more independently elected officials um, and was less hands-on in in shaping the path of council. Um, So I think that remains to be seen. Um, I know that um, there are a couple other folks who were interested in the position and whether they did the legwork needed to to get the support remains to be seen. I think Curtis Jones and Mark Squilla have been both mentioned, right? But but it seems like the reporting is is pointing toward Kenyatta Johnson. Yeah, and, and what I will say is is, um, you know, they, this vote officially happens in January. Yep. So mm-hmm. there, there is there is some time in between. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's it's not common for people to go back on their word once they give their commitment. So, yeah. And we'll have a new mayor, too. So we'll see how that relationship between a new CP Absolutely. and a new mayor. Lots to watch. Thank you so much, Lauren. That's Lauren Vitas, government relations professional, election lawyer, and author of the blog, Broad and Market. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. And up next, new research and recommendations this Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Stick with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And welcome back into Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. I'm Cherry Gregg. Now, Avi, this is a topic that is very close to my heart, and I believe it's one that is close to the hearts of many of our listeners. At the top of the show, we mentioned that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and one in eight women are diagnosed with the disease at least once in their lifetimes. But there are new developments, Mm -hmm. Jerry, in cancer research and prevention. One example, women are now advised to start receiving regular mammograms as early as 40 years old. And before we get into this conversation, we also want to mention that while it's mostly women who are diagnosed, any person can develop breast cancer, and we should all be aware of the risk. And with so many other health care topics, black women have been left behind for decades. Now research shows that we are at a higher risk of developing breast cancer early. Sitting across from me is Dr. Lola 
Fianju, I'm sorry about that. Um, she is the chief of breast surgery at Penn Medicine. Dr. Fianju, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you for having and me. And please say your name correctly. So I can... That was great. Lola Fianju. Got you. Tracy Smith is also here. She's a breast cancer survivor and founder of Tracy's Bio, an organization that unites women who suffer from breast cancer and gives them a place to connect. Tracy, welcome to Studio Two. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Um, now, before we get to this conversation, everybody, just want to make sure we give our, our listeners an opportunity to participate. You can email Studio Two at whyy.org or call 888-477-9499 with your questions and comments for our guests. Um, Dr. Fayanju, breast cancer has come a long way. I mean, a very long way. Yet, I feel like there are more and more women being diagnosed with breast cancer. Can you talk about how far we've come and where we stand now, statistically, when it comes to breast cancer? Well, as you mentioned, you know, one in eight women in the United States is diagnosed with breast cancer in her lifetime. And the incidence of breast cancer is actually slightly higher in white women as compared to other groups. But we do know that um, when black women are diagnosed, their likelihood of dying from the disease is higher. And in addition, we also know that black women are more likely to be diagnosed at a younger age and with more mm -hmm. aggressive forms of cancer. So the big story about breast cancer is one of success, namely that we've made a lot of progress. With the advent of screening mammography, it means that we're able to catch cancers before they're symptomatic, before someone knows they have them. Um, and it means we're able to treat them in a way that's curable and then with a cure that's durable, one that lasts. But the problem is that um, there are still too many people who don't get screening mammograms or don't follow up on mammograms that are abnormal, yeah. um, who don't get the treatment they should for the cancer they have, um, and who don't feel that they can turn to their healthcare providers when they have a problem. Um, the other thing is that, frankly, the guidelines change a lot, and that's kind of mm -hmm. confusing for people. So, um, And the other thing to realize is that the guidelines are really for average risk people. So one of the other things we want to emphasize is people knowing their risk. Are you at higher risk? And an important way to know whether you're at higher risk is knowing your family history, mm. and that's really important. I believe uh, the, the headline statistic, 1989 mm -hmm. to 2020, 43% drop in breast cancer mortality. That is a remarkable success story. But you mentioned there that screening. There, there are still gaps when it comes to screening. And there was this panel of, of health experts that said women with average breast cancer risk should start getting mammograms at age 40 as opposed to 50. Can you tell us why those recommendations shifted and what they're hoping to accomplish? So those recommendations are from the USPSTF. Um, and they actually rec reveal or uh, reveal a reversal from their previous recommendation to begin um, routine mammography at 50, which was not something that many of us in the breast cancer community, frankly, agreed with. We mm -hmm. felt that that was not a good idea. Now, the reason that they had gone with 50, frankly, was because they were trying to avoid another danger within the breast cancer world, which is one of overdiagnosis. That is mm -hmm. um, the anxiety that comes with diagnosing women um, with lesions that may not be cancer or that are very early cancers that are not a threat to their lives, such as DCIS, and the increased number of procedures and exams that are associated with um, having screening start at 40 for some groups of women. Um, but the concern was that a lot of the data that went into the recommendation for originally moving the screening initiation date to 50 um, by USPSDF was conducted in populations that may not reflect the United States diversity, mm. um, namely populations out of Northern Europe, 
where they have excellent registry data to look at longitudinal population-based outcomes, but again, in populations that don't necessarily look the way ours do. Um, so in they're terms benchmarking of it off the wrong thing. Potentially, 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 again, as part of a larger context. And so we all were very excited, those of us in the breast oncology community, to see that shift from beginning 50 to 40. And again, in terms of the nuance and the confusion, their old guidelines said, start a conversation at 40, begin annual at 50 with the option to start at 40 or 45. Again, probably more uh, detailed and most people are able to engage with uh, their primary care provider gynecologist in a 10-minute, 15-minute yeah. you know, uh, appointment. And so all that ambiguity just made things really confusing for patients. And so um, we definitely agreed with the shift to saying start at 40. Mm. Um, what we were a bit more concerned about, as I said, start at 40 but go every other year. Mm. Um, many of us in the oncology community, we recommend you know, the American Society of Breast Surgeons, um, the American College of Radiology Society of Breast Imaging, those of us who um, you know, treat cancer every day, we really recommend beginning at 40 and continuing with that every year so long as you are healthy and so long as you have at least an approximate 10-year life expectancy. And that's what I would recommend. Every year instead of every other. Correct. Very interesting. And if you are just tuning in, we're talking about new research. We're talking about new prevention strategies when it comes to breast cancer. That was the voice of Dr. Lola Fianju, Chief of Breast Surgery at Penn Medicine. I'd like to bring in Tracy Smith, founder of Tracy's Bio, into the conversation. Tracy, you are a breast cancer survivor. You were diagnosed in 2013. Tell us a little bit about your story. So in 2013, um, I like to say I'm a 10-year survivor, and I'm just overjoyed about that. I'm so happy about that. In 2013, I went to get a checkup because I wanted to run the Boy Street Run. And so I said, let, my, let me get myself into physical. Let me um, be serious about my physical um, fitness, about my, about my health. And so when I went in at age 44, I was told then that I had breast cancer. Mm. Did not have a mammogram at 40 didn't pay attention to my family history, so I fit all of the negative statistics in regards to getting breast cancer. And what was that journey like for you? I mean, that was a shocking moment, but clearly mm. you you did everything you needed to do, and 10 years you're yes. thriving. Yes, and so it was, I had an out-of-body out experience. I was inspecting when I went in that day, April the 13th, to hear three days later that I had breast cancer. I was just going to start my journey on making sure that my health, that I was on top of my health. And mm -hmm. here I am in the midst of now really fighting for my life. And so I had an outer body experience. I had, I couldn't believe it. Although I should have um, been on top of it. My grandmother had breast cancer. My mother had breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So I just ignored all the statistics in regards to um, getting checked. Um, when it comes to breast cancer and mammograms, I, I, I blew it, definitely blew it. We wow. talk about getting checked. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to bring in a question from a different Tracy, and one of our listeners, Tracy, mm -hmm. who asked, do we have to get a check every year if breasts look fine, don't hurt, and we don't feel any lumps? And I wanted to ask you, Dr. Fianju, because I, there is, it seems like some conflicting information about how helpful self-examination is. So how would you answer Tracy's question and maybe layer on top of that what should we be doing or thinking about when it comes to self-examination? That's a great question. Um, I do encourage women to know their breasts mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, you're the best arbiter or judge of what normal is for you. Um, that does not mean self-breast exam is the way to diagnose breast cancer because the truth of the matter is by the time there's a symptom, that means you have a pretty 
more advanced stage of breast cancer. But nonetheless, knowing your body is important, especially when you're younger and likely to be um, engaging, not be engaging in screening at this point. And so knowing that a new rash is there, that your nipple is now inverted and it wasn't inverted before, that there's now nipple discharge maybe inside your bra or things like that. But self-breast exam in and of itself is not considered a reliable way to monitor one's breasts. Mm. Um, we do recommend screening mammogram beginning at age 40 for average risk individuals. Um, and just because something is normal one year does not mean you should go the next year and think you don't have to go. We see what are called interval cancers all the time. That is, even between an annual mammogram and the next year, if a change occurs in your breast, don't say, I'm going to wait for my mammogram the next year. Go in and get what's called a diagnostic mammogram. A screening mammogram is done if someone does not have symptoms. A diagnostic mammogram, often in conjunction with an ultrasound, is done when there's a symptom. And I will say for Tracy, our other guest, she's someone who, if I were her gynecologist or primary care physician, I would have had you start screening much earlier, mm. potentially because you had a family history, right. which means your lifetime risk for breast cancer was undoubtedly higher than 20%. And if that's the case, if your lifetime risk is higher than 20% by various risk calculators that are out there to quantify your lifetime risk, you may qualify for getting screening at an earlier age and to actually have MRI as part of your screening as well. And that's so important. We've been yeah. talking about this number 40. Yeah. Now, 40 is not for everybody. Correct. We just want to drive that home, especially if you have a family history. And I want to expand that because um, one of the Good Souls, I did a, have a project called the Good Souls Project, and we had um, a radiation therapist who had said she became an advocate because she started seeing so many women in their 20s and 30s, specifically women of color, but all women, sort of being diagnosed with breast cancer and she felt like something was going on. Is this more common than it used to be, doctor? Uh, that's a great question and I know that individual. Mm -hmm. I went to the screening of her wonderful mm -hmm. film, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Mia Bailey. Yeah, Bailey um, yes. You know, there is some evidence that a number of different cancers um, that we are having higher rates of diagnosis in younger individuals. Now it's hard to know whether that's an observational effect that we're seeing um, diagnosis because our imaging is better and people are getting the kind of tests that pick up cancer at an earlier age. That's not entirely clear, especially in breast cancer. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we are looking at that signal as a community and trying to figure out, you know, why is that? Is it environmental? Um, other things that people are being exposed to or are consuming that might be contributing to that. Um, it might be that we're diagnosing things earlier again because there's more awareness people are more likely to have had genetic testing. That mm -hmm. means that they're more likely then to be engaged in early screening, which means they're more likely to get the cancer diagnosed at 30 than at 35 or at 40, which is a good thing. So that's all to say is that seeing more cancer in younger people doesn't necessarily mean at this stage that it's because it's happening earlier, but it might be that we're catching it earlier mm -hmm. in people who mm -hmm. are going to be diagnosed at a later age. Which is Such increasing that survival yeah. rate and causing that number to go up. Such an yeah. important distinction. Mm -hmm. um, if you wanna join this conversation, 888-477-9499 uh, is the number. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. Tracy Smith, want to bring you back into this conversation. Um, one of the things that's really changing is how we treat breast cancer. Mm -hmm. But but this was 10 years ago for you. What was treatment like for you? And I, you don't have to go into all the detail, but what okay. you feel comfortable sharing. Sure. Uh, what, what, what was your treatment regimen? I had six months of chemo. I had 24 rounds of um, radiation, and I had five surgeries. Mm -hmm. Very and, invasive. Uh, Very uh, what, invasive. And, and what, I mean, how did you 
mentally prepare yourself to go through that? I didn't. And so, um, and that's the reason why I probably started the organization because after I went through all of my treatment, I still was left with, now what? Mm. What do I do after this? My anxiety was through the roof. I probably had four biopsies since 2013 because every time I feel a lump or every time um, I think that I feel a lump, I call my oncologist. Um, who was going to pour into me from a spiritual standpoint because now, you know, my life sort of kind of plat, um, flashed in front of me. And so who was going to be there after our wonderful doctors keep us alive? Who was going to allow me to thrive? And so there was no organization that spoke to me to say, listen, I have you. Listen, you're going to go through this. Your anxiety is going to be okay. I'm going to pray with you. And there was nobody that fed into me after I left the hospital. And so Tracy Bio was birthed with that reason of let's create a sisterhood because I, I am going through this. And there has to be other females that are going through this and who needs spiritual, mental um, comfort. And so I created an organization to say, sis, I got you. Mm. I'm and, here. And so let's quick follow up for that because mm. um, because breast cancer treatment can be harsh and, and we'll expand some of the, the, the new treatments with the doctor in just a moment. Mm. But um, you brought a community of women together and Tracy's bio stands for a beautiful inside and out. Right. Talk about what you all do um, to support women um, on the spiritual side of the journey to s- surviving breast cancer. So Tracy Biles is a, is a support group. And so we have seminars. We have, I write books for those that want to share their experiences. So I have five publications out of ladies who wanted to share their experience and wanted to um just speak in a very transparent form what cancer looks like and 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 what you go through um, when when you are um, when you do have cancer because prior to that um, a lot of people don't know the ins and outs of what you go through when you have cancer and again the anxiety the scars the 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 husband saying that listen I I, I don't want to be half of a I don't want to be with half of a woman or mm. I've never been married and so here I am with no breasts like how do I feel um, like a female how do I feel for lack of a better word sexy because now I have no breasts and so these are all the concerns that you know the doctors um, don't really talk about because again they're doing a wonderful job keeping me alive but I still have to go on it's 10 years and so how do I tackle all that anxiety and frustration and fear and and why me how do you tackle all of that and so I just wanted to create a a safe haven for conversation Mm -hmm. a safe haven to say um you can talk to me I take phone calls two o'clock in the morning Mm -hmm. when you're crying when you're about to walk into um um chemo, I take phone calls when they say, listen, I lost my left breast. Should I take my other breast off? I take all those phone calls. Again, I'm not the expert. I'm not the doctor. I can only tell you what I went through and bring you a community of somebody who might went through what you went through and let's have a conversation and talk about it. I want to bring in a caller. This is a Barbara from Philadelphia who has a question about dense breasts. Barbara, you're on studio too. What is your question or comment? Um, first, I want to uh, thank those who who care about people who are, are addressing this. And my question is, since African-American women are often diagnosed with dense breasts and therefore it's suggested that they have, I, I'm not sure if it's an MRI, but a, a more advanced uh, test, 
Is it also necessary if you're getting those to continue to uh, get regular mammograms? Fascinating question. Thank you so much, Barbara. Uh, Dr. Fianchu, can you address that? Uh, MRIs is another form of, of yeah. uh, diagnostic here. How does that, you know, you know, correlate or, or sort of, it, how is it in conversation with mammography? That's a great question. So um, on average, so let me just talk about breast density first of all. So breast density talks about how much breast tissue you have relative to fat in your breasts. Um, and there are four categories basically ranging from, you know, not very dense to extremely dense. And um, interestingly, in the, in the state of Pennsylvania, um, Pat Halpin Murphy, who is the president of the Pennsylvania Breast Cancer Coalition, has worked with the state legislator to actually um, arrange for the fact that in Pennsylvania, women with heterogeneously or extremely dense yeah. breasts should be able to get breast MRI now covered by their insurance, which is a huge win. Um, but coming back to the caller's question, um, that actually, on average, black women don't have as dense breasts as white women. That's just something we've observed looking at many, many scans. That doesn't mean, however, that um, there is equal access to breast MRI when needed. That is, um, actually, our group at Penn um, did some research that showed that even looking at people with similar density of different races um, and similar density of different insurance levels coverage, um, that you don't see equitable access to breast MRI. And so there is still um, enough bias in the system that um, people with uh, you know, Medicaid as well as um, black women are less likely to get MRI when it's indicated. Um, in terms of what MRI provides, it is a great adjunct study. Um, it helps us um, often delineate the extent of disease in people who have already been diagnosed with breast cancer, and we need a bit more information. Yeah. It is also good for people who are at elevated risk for breast cancer. That right. is because they have a gene that puts them at risk for breast cancer. Um, and in women who are younger and therefore have more breast tissue in their breasts relative to fat, um, which is what mammograms are better at helping us distinguish fat from breast tissue. But when you don't have as much fat in your breast when you're younger, mm. they're not as effective. And so MRI is really good for women who are under the age of 40. It's really good for women who have a lobular breast cancer. It's really good for women who are often getting it before they start chemotherapy. But MRI does not replace mammography. Okay. The other thing that's important to know is MRI is very sensitive but not specific, which means that sometimes it diagnoses things, it finds things that aren't necessarily cancer but have to lead us down a diagnostic that path. false positive. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's that caveat as well. Interesting. And I want to bring in one more caller. Um, Christy, who is a survivor, wants to share how she found support. Christy, you're on Studio 2. What's your question or comment? Uh, my comment was that I'm a six-year survivor. And I uh, kind of stumbled into dragon boating for breast cancer survivors, mm. which has turned out to be a very effective way to prevent reoccurrences uh, scientifically. And everybody, there's so much support among all the team members for one another. And there's a tremendous spirit and joy of being on the water. And for most people, it's the first time they've ever done anything like this. None of us have heard of dragon boating before. So I just... Uh, put it out there is a really good thing to look into. In this area, there are three different um, breast cancer survivor dragon boating teams. My team is Hope Afloat. And we have a wonderful time, and it's quite a powerful sisterhood. And 
It has done wonders yes. for our health. Thank you so Thank much, Thank you so Christy. much, Christy. Wherever you can find yeah, uh, that, that sisterhood. Mm-hmm. Can I just ask a real quick question before we go? Because you only have a minute and a half left. And I wanted, uh, doctor, for you to talk a little bit about immunotherapy and some of the advances in treatment. Because, you know, it used to be surgery and chemo and some very invasive and harsh treatments. There is but some now, hope here yeah. now about new treatments. What can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, I want to emphasize that one of the most exciting things about being um a breast cancer surgeon and a researcher is that we have made so much progress with regards to evidence-based approaches to treatment. Um, On the one hand, immunotherapy, which means using your body's own immune cells to treat cancer, has led us to have huge um, impact um, in being able to treat effectively triple negative breast cancer, which is a more um, aggressive form of breast cancer that disproportionately affects women of color, specifically women of African ancestry. Um, Pembrolizumab, which is a form of immunotherapy, um, has significantly increased Um, patient's response to chemotherapy. Um, If they have triple negative breast cancer, it's part of a regimen that women often get prior to surgery in the way that um, Ms. Tracy did here um, has been very effective. On the other end of the spectrum, we are also finding ways in which to do less treatment. There are more and more women now who don't need as much surgery, who don't need as much radiation, who don't need as much chemotherapy. And so what we're really working towards in breast cancer is personalization, how to make sure you're getting the right treatment Mm. for you. Um, I feel great when I can have a patient have surgery and we can give them you know, a, a, a wonderful reconstructive mm-hmm. surgery where they are one and done, that they get yeah. a beautiful reconstruction and don't need to come back for five yeah, surgeries. Five surgeries. Um, exactly. That they don't have to have all the yeah. lymph nodes removed under their arm. That's a yeah. win. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. That's Dr. Mo- Lola Fianju, Chief of Breast Surgery at Penn Medicine. Thank you for being here. And thank you, Tracy Smith as well, breast cancer survivor, founder of Tracy's Bio. Thank you so much, You're Tracy. Welcome. Um, And uh, we see a lot of comments we couldn't get to. Perhaps we can come back to this topic another time. But for now, stick with us on Studio Two. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. To Studio 2. <laughs> I'm not Janice Joplin. I'm Avi wolfman Arendt with the always groovy Cherry Craig. <laughs> um, Janice Joplin, one of the many, many acts that performed at the Electric Factory concert venue over its long history. And in, in the late 60s, concert promoter Larry Maggot and Alan Spivak, owner of several jazz clubs at the time, believed in the power of music, especially rock and roll. And they saw an opportunity to build a concert scene right here in the city from the ground up. And these are the early origins of the Electric Factory and the decades of work by these pioneers who brought so much joy and liveliness to crowds of all shapes and sizes It's now on display at a new exhibit at Drexel. It's called Electrified, 50 Years of Electric Factory. And lucky for us, Larry Maggot joined us right here in our studio to reminisce about the concert scene and drawing audiences and artists to his venue. But first, we went way, way back to Larry's childhood, and he, excuse me, Larry's childhood, and he told us about the song that started it all. Life could be a dream, life could be a dream. Do, 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 Life could be a dream. If I could take I remember being home, listening to the radio, and I heard this song. 
and it was so different. This, the lyrics were so different, and you know, shaboom, a lot of ding dong, lang a lang a lang. It's just, you know, what? It's like I, an alien language. Yeah, but I understood that. Yeah, yeah. I it got spoke that, to you. and I remember running out of my house to tell my friends on the street that I had heard this amazing new song. And then, a couple of years later, I heard this uh, Little Richard song, a wop bop a loop bop a wop bam boom and I just said, yeah, that's right. That's so yeah. I knew exactly <laughs> what, that's right, I knew exactly what, what, uh, what he was saying, and, you know, it was a different language, but it was a language that teenagers could understand and there was that was the separation between your parents and moving forward yeah let's fast forward to 1968 right before you opened the original electric factory 22nd in arch streets what was the concert scene like in philadelphia before that moment it was fairly non-existent what i knew when i was a uh, a teenager were rock and roll shows and, and like cavalcades of stars mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they would have people that uh, had hit records of the day they'd come out and sing one uh, song their hit song of the mm-hmm. day maybe two in the headliner there was a big one at the arena with 46 and market it's not there any longer but the headliner was my idol at the time Frankie Lyman and the mm. teenagers and it was uh, it was an amazing experience for me. Uh, the group was on stage, he ran out of nowhere, and all of a sudden he just jumped on the stage, did a split, and came up <laughs> holding the microphone and started singing. I said, God, Jesus, this is evil. This is it. And when you think about the Electra Factory, when you got together with the Spivak brothers, to create this this venue, what was a problem that you saw that you were hoping that the electric factory would well, solve? Going back to to your last question about what was the concert scene like? Well, it was as I said, it was kind of non-existent, and I I saw that, and there was there was very little in that time because of American Bandstand and uh, the disc jockeys being the the real stars of the day. Acts would come along and play those uh, dances. Uh, they yep. were in town to be on bandstand. They would show up, lip sync their song, and it was a uh, it was a, a draw. But there was no there was no concert scene. I worked for a uh, large agency in New York, and they booked concerts, but there were very few in Philadelphia. So, Spivak Brothers, Herb Spivak, owned a jazz club. And when I came back to Philadelphia to visit my family or my friends, um, I'd invariably wind up at the showboat or Peps or the Cadillac show bar to see what acts were playing there. I got introduced to Herb Spivak, and uh, he said, how do I get into the rock business? He had been doing jazz concerts very well, uh, but there was a limit. Yeah. And... There was no limit to what rock and roll mm. could do presented in the right atmosphere. And I just said, you know, that if you want to really be in this in the in the rock business, open a club. We uh, over the next few months we had 
We had some discussions whenever I was mm-hmm. in town. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see what was happening with rock music, that it had it, that had substance, and I saw the way that music w- was going. Not, I'm not singularly, but everything everything has a start. One thing that struck me, and this comes from someone who loves to go to live music and spend a lot of money on concerts. The tickets started at $3.50 at the Electric Factory. $3. And it was one, you kept the prices low, lower than a lot of the competition at the time. How were you able to do that and still sort of grow the Electric Factory and your businesses? the factory never made a lot of money, not by design, but that's what people could pay. And I remember that it was a struggle to get to four bucks. But the interesting thing was that there were kids panhandling for money. Not everybody had mm-hmm. three bucks, three fifty, and they uh, they would come in at the door and and just throw change on on, on whatever they had. Yeah, and that's how they bad had. they wanted to come. Yeah, and they were the same people all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know that. It was, you weren't getting crisp dollar bills. Yeah. What did you do to make performers and artists feel comfortable so they wanted to come to your clubs? Purely a place to play in another city. They didn't need perks. They didn't need, you know, it was Mm -hmm. just, they just needed a stage. Needed a stage. When we first opened, we, we didn't have dressing rooms. These performers weren't wearing uniforms they didn't need a place to change or anything they just came in their regular attire which was very attractive to mm-hmm. be honest with you and and uh, to break out of that that mold where yeah. they, they they didn't have to look alike or or dress alike they dress like they dress like they dress and they dress like the audience yeah you have to re- you have to remember that the the phrase that uh, art imitates life is is true and, and then life imitates art as well. And so 18,000 concerts, lots of concerts. And the exhibit at Drexel is going to showcase photos, posters, concert apparel, guitars. Yep. Do you have a favorite piece of memorabilia? I never thought of that. <laughs> There's a number of things that uh, I, I wish I had saved everything Um but one day you wake up and say, what am I doing with all this stuff? I'm 75 years old. I'm, you know, grow up. Springsteen lent us his Telecaster that he played through uh, at least Born to Run and uh, uh, album. And that's on display. He lent that to us. Well, Larry, thank you so much for the time. Sure. And congratulations on the exhibit. Thank you. That was Larry Maggot, co-founder of the Electric Factory. So great and very cool to talk to him. And don't forget, the exhibit is titled Electrified, 50 Years of Electric Factory. It's on display at the Drexel Founding Collection. We're born to run, too, because that's the end of the show. <laughs> that is. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Adam Staniszewski is our engineer. More of our show, WHYY.org slash Studio 2. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for joining us, friends.